I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have together here tonight and to be able to study God's Word together and in particular look at this fifth chapter in the letter to the Romans. I want to say before I start that I definitely do not have a full understanding of all that this chapter speaks on. And if you find there to be something wrong, I would appreciate your comments after the services. I talked to Mark a little bit and several other brothers about this chapter in an effort to be able to bring something that's sound and beneficial to you. At the beginning of the week, Deacon and I went to town to get something and he asked me if we could do, I can't remember what it was, but something when we got back to the house and I told him I really needed to spend time working on my lesson and getting it done. And then he asked if he could preach with me tonight. And I told him no and, and why he couldn't, but it intrigued me that he, was, that he wanted to. And I said, if you could preach, what would you preach on? And he quickly responded with God. And so then I asked him, I said, well, what in particular would you preach on about him? And he had to think about it for a little bit, but he finally ended up just saying how much he loves us. And while his heart and his thoughts made me happy, it wasn't until later that evening that it really hit me what he said. We can see several themes that are running through the first five chapters of Romans, and we'll see these themes continue as we study more into it. We see the righteousness and judgment of God. We see justification through Jesus. But at the heart of all these things, we see God's love and provision that's made for us through his son, Jesus Christ. As we start, I want to go back into Romans chapter 4 and look at the last three verses there. Paul is writing of the great faith of Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith. He was not justified by circumcision or other works of the law. Abraham's faith did not shrink whenever he was told that he would be the father of many nations. In fact, we are told that he considered his own body to be as good as dead in terms of it bearing children. But none of these things that we would consider to be large obstacles in our life ever caused Abraham to waver in the promises that God made to him. But rather in all these things, his faith was strengthened, as we can see this evident in the faith that he had to offer Isaac as God directed. Abraham had this faith because he glorified God and he was assured that God was able to do what he had promised to him. We'll be reading out the New King James this evening, and let's look at the last three verses there of Romans 4. It says, Now it, is, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but us also. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our offenses and was raised up for our justification. This was not a secluded occurrence for Abraham only. We're told that this promise was made to us. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared right because of his faith in God. We are told that our faith in Jesus will also be counted to us as righteousness. We become the offspring of Adam and we are recipients of the promise by having faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead. What great hope we have. God is able to deem us righteous because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. God's righteousness has been revealed through the faithful life of Jesus. Paul states two things that we need to consider when thinking about the faithful life of Jesus. He tells us that Jesus was delivered up. Jesus was handed over and delivered up to his death 
for our sins. And Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is essential to our justification. We need the faithful life of Jesus, but we also rely on his death to pay the price for our sins. In Romans chapter 6, Paul will clarify more about why the resurrection of Jesus is important. But I want, what I want us to see is that the faithfulness of Jesus includes his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus did this for us. The promises that were made to Abraham have become a truth to us through Jesus. Justification for the world has been accomplished in the faithful life, death, and resurrection of him. The promise that the world would be blessed was accomplished in Jesus. And as we get into chapter 5, Paul is going to tell us other things that we have through him. Let's start there, and we'll read the first five verses there in Romans 5. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we can see, since we have been justified by faith through Jesus, that we have peace with God. And as Callan talked about this morning, peace is one of the greatest things that we can have especially peace with God. It is important to see that if we are not justified by faith through Jesus, that we are enemies with God. We can see here in this same chapter of Romans 5, verse 10, it says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Without Jesus, we are enemies of God. There is separation between us and God because of our sins. Even though these first few verses focus on the justification and grace, we cannot forget that the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness, as we see in Romans 1 and verse 18. But when we are justified by faith, then God is able to exonerate us because we have, been, we have accessed the blood of Jesus. Peace has been made with God. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 20 says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We are no longer separated from God because, our sins, because of our sins. We are now reconciled to him through his Son. We cannot appreciate the justification that we have in Christ until we fully understand where we stand before God without Jesus. We are completely undone, unjust, and condemned before God without him. We have gained access into his grace in which we stand. Not only has God, clear, um, not only has God cleared us of our guilt, but he has also drawn us to himself. Through this, we can have fellowship with God, no longer condemned by sin, but forgiven of it we are able to stand in grace. Because of this, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Jesus accomplished what the law could not, and that is that it provided to us confidence in being God's children. 
Justification is all about God and the glory that he deserves because he made it possible through Jesus for us to stand in grace. The next list of things or things that we can rejoice in, and it's not something that I typically think of when rejoicing, but as we can see in verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, we can rejoice in the unpleasant parts of this life. Here Paul tells us that we rejoice in sufferings because our sufferings produce hope. And if we were to look at the end of verse 4 and the beginning part of verse 5, we can see that this is how this point ends. So the natural question produced from this is how does suffering produce hope? We are told that our suffering produces patience or endurance. Suffering, when we are focused on God, enables us to be steadfast and to be able to endure the storms that we face in this life. Next, Paul says that endurance produces character. When we endure through sufferings that we face in this life, our character is strengthened and shaped in ways that were not present or evident before. And the last thing in this thought that we can see is that character produces hope. Our change through the trials of this life is evidence of us allowing the word of God to change us through these sufferings. As much as we don't like it, sufferings are what changes the most in this life. When I look back on my life, the times that I've suffered or went through difficult times are the times that I rely on God the most. Peace with God helps us to overcome and endure the difficulties in this life. Suffering, once again, if we are focused on God, turns us into the people God desires for us to be. In our suffering, our hope will not be let down. Our hope is not disappointed because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does this mean? In verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is justifying the ungodly through Jesus. Because of this, we have peace with God, we have access to His grace, and we can rejoice in our sufferings. We have the ability to endure sufferings if we keep our minds and let our thoughts be filled with the understanding and encouragement of what Jesus has done for us. There in verse 6, Paul is not talking about our physical strength. He's addressing something completely different there. He's stating that we have a moral problem before God, and that problem is that we are ungodly. Our weakness is the fact that there's nothing that we can do of our own to mitigate that problem. We cannot change our state. In a worldly example, we all know what this feeling is like. You're driving, not paying attention to the speed, and then you pass a cop car. Then you look down at your speedometer and notice that you're speeding. And if you're like me, you feel helpless or you get a sinking feeling in your stomach. You can slow down, but at that point it's too late. You've already been clocked as going over the speed limit. You can drive the speed limit the rest of the day or you can drive the speed limit the rest of your life, but that does not change the fact that, there, that you have been pulled over and been handed a ticket. You are helpless and cannot fix what you've done. You've broken the traffic laws and your consequence is that of a costly ticket. We are without strength as lawbreakers. But instead of us paying the price for our sin, at the right time Jesus pays the ultimate price for our sins by dying on a cross. If you think back to verse 6, what are the two 
things that we can see about us, about who we are before God without Jesus. That's that we are without strength and that we are ungodly. Verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. And we've all heard this verse, we've heard it preached on, and we understand the point that's being made here. Paul is stating the difficulty of us being able to find someone that we would die on behalf of. If we are honest, even for those that we love the most, our first thought is not to die for them. And that's not that we wouldn't be put in, a, in that particular situation, but I think that our first thought is how can we save them from harm without injuring ourselves. So what we can see being drawn here between verses 7 and verse 8 is what Paul wants us to see, that it's not a fair comparison. Jesus did not die for the righteous. We will scarcely die for a good person, but Jesus died for everyone. What did verse 6 say? It said that he died for the ungodly. And this is the whole idea of verse 8. It says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us while we were sinners. Jesus did much more than any one person is willing to do. So it's not a comparison, it's a contrast. We won't die for the good and righteous, but Jesus died for the ungodly. Why did Jesus die for us? Verse 8 tells us that God is showing his love to us. At the, cro at the cross, love is proven and shown to us. Some ways that we might try to prove that we love someone are simply by saying I love you or trying to do nice things for them or buying presents. And while all these things are good and well, they, they do show a sense of affection towards that person, but it's certainly not a greater display of love than the death of Jesus on the cross. Death is the greatest picture of love. While we were, sin while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We are justified by the death of Jesus. Jesus paid the price for the sins of the world so that we would not have to bear the punishment for what we have done. There's a phrase there in verses 9 and 10, and it's actually in several other verses throughout this chapter of Romans, but that, that phrase is much more. It said, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And I think the point that is being made here is that God has already done the most difficult thing that he could do in sending his son to this sin-filled sin world and allowing Jesus to die for sinners and die a death he did not deserve. Then how much more, once we are reconciled to him through Jesus, will he be to save us from his wrath and save us through the life of Jesus? This should give us great confidence in the love that God has for us. We can rejoice in God because we have reconciliation through him. What was not made possible through the law is now made possible through Jesus. 
We rejoice in God and what he has done for us through his son. Rejoicing is a characteristic, or it very well should be a characteristic, of the life of a Christian. How can we not praise God when we look at the immense lengths that he has gone to to show us his love? We worship and rejoice because God reconciled us when we were sinners. As we go through the last half of this chapter, there's some things that we need to look at in verse 12 and answer them in order for verses 12 and the rest of the chapter to be consistent with one another. Let's go ahead and read verses 12 through the end. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through the one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One thing that we need to look at and answer is what death is Paul referring to. When Paul speaks about death in this text, is Paul referring to physical death or is he referring to spiritual death, the separation from God? The context of this chapter will need to answer the question for us, and I believe the context of the first four and a half chapters of Romans up until this point will point to the same conclusion. Paul has not discussed physical death so far in this letter. So if we are to believe that Paul is talking about physical death, then we would need to assume that he has brought in a new topic that has not been a part of this message. Another point to consider is that the immediate text that we read there in verses 10 and 11 is speaking about reconciliation. Spiritual death and separation is what Paul has been discussing. Our reconciliation means that we are no longer separated from God. The verses prior to verse 12 have talked about reconciliation, and this is God's solution to our spiritual death. So the contrast that is made in 12 through the end of the chapter is about death and life. Adam brought forth death and Jesus brought life. Verse 21 gives us a good picture of this. It says that sin reigned in death and grace reigned through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus. So we can see here that what's being contrasted is 
spiritual death versus eternal life. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks a lot about being dead to sin but alive to God. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is the context that we can see, and the natural contrast to this is eternal life. In the natural contrast to eternal life is the wages of sin is spiritual death, as we have established that this is separation from God. The other thing that we need to look at is the idea of original sin. And while this is not the text, and we don't see these words in Scripture, or this being the focus of this passage, it is the most important verse in the Bible to understanding this false view of sin. And Brother Pat was here several months ago, so I, I don't intend to spend a lot of time on it. But we will address it because it's important to understand in order for verses 12 and the rest of the chapter to be consistent. And what I found was that original sin is a Calvinistic view that is basically says that sin is hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature, diffused into all parts of the soul. They being the root of mankind, referring to Adam and Eve, the guilt of this, of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupt nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made op opposite to all that is good, and wholly inclined to evil. Like I said, we won't spend a lot of time at looking at it, but this is what original sin is said to be, and this is just a basic and quick overview of it. Can we find this in Scripture? This doctrine, as we've stated, is, is based on Romans chapter 5, specifically verse 12. And we can see a depiction of something that could be possibly thought of as this without careful consideration and making sure that contextually we get from the scriptures what we need to in order to see what Paul is saying here. So why do we not believe that we are sinners because of Adam? There are a couple of reasons to discard this idea, and for time's sake we won't look at, we won't look at all of them, but I would like to note that Romans 5 and verse 12 cannot be ignored but also 15 through 19 cannot be, which we will look at in a little bit. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, for all have sinned. Why did death spread to all people? Paul tells us it's because all have sinned. If it was because of Adam, Paul could have simply stated that death spread to all men because Adam sinned. But this is not the answer he gave us. The answer he gave us is because all have sinned. Another thing, another reason is because if we do nothing to receive the sin of Adam, then the necessary inference is that we do nothing to receive the gift or the grace of Jesus. Notice that this is the contrast that we can see in verses 18 and 19. If I did nothing and still receive the sin and condemnation of Adam, then we would need to believe that we can do nothing and receive the justification and righteousness from Jesus. If this is in fact true, then all the world is saved regardless of justification from Jesus. Then justification is not by faith, if this is true. Justification is given to the world just as sin and corruption was given to it. 
we can see that this is not true because Paul has taught something completely different very consistently throughout this letter to Romans. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul taught that we need to follow in the faith of Abraham. We are under condemnation because of our own sins. Each one of us has broken God's law, and for this reason we experience spiritual death. We are separated from God because of our sins. We are only condemned for our sins and not Adam's, otherwise God would be unjust in, in condemning us for sins we did not commit. And we can see this to be true when God speaks to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. He says, For the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, nor the father of the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We are going to be judged based on what we do. And as we saw there in verse 12 of Romans 5, death spread to all men because all have sinned. In verse 13, we see that sin was in the world before the law of Moses. Like we heard in Dee's lesson last week, Romans 4 and verse 15, that where there is no law, there is no transgression. The framework of Romans has been about the law of Moses, and Paul continues to speak to this. We can infer that there were laws given before the law of Moses because sin is not counted if there is no law. There in verse 14 of Romans 5, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness, of the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. The sin of Adam was not like the sin of others. Adam lived in paradise, and his one command was not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The law, is, the law was different then, than the laws that came after he sinned. After this took place, there were moral laws against immorality and impurity. Adam's sin is not like the sins we commit because Adam's sin affected all of the world. Not just his immediate descendants, but all of us. What Adam did and what the one to come referring to Jesus did changed and affected the entire world. It is in this way that Adam is a type of the one to come, that being Jesus. The one act of both men had a lasting impact on the world. And the rest of these verses are going to explain the contrast between Adam and Jesus. I think it's important to acknowledge that a faithful life in Christ is the only effective solution to our sinfulness as humans. The main focus of verse 12 and, and through the rest of this chapter here in Romans 5 is not about Adam and his sin. Paul is simply trying to draw a contrast between this. The first 11 verses of this chapter talk about justification by faith and having peace with God, and we can have these blessings only through Jesus. We read that God showed his love to us that while we were in our sin, Christ died for us. And last, lastly, we see reconciliation that we have with God through Jesus. Paul then starts off verse 12 with the word, therefore. So this lets us know that he's going to go back and build on what he just got done talking about. I believe the intent of this passage is to clarify how the death of Jesus can bring about our salvation and that like the disobedience of one man, sin was brought into the world. So also like the obedience of one man, salvation has been brought to the world. John 3 verses 16 and 17 says, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into this world to condemn the world, but that through him that the world might be saved. And if the last part of this chapter is as wordy to me as it is to y'all, I think it'd be good to go back through, starting in verse 15, to read it again. But I want to read 15 through the end of this chapter. It says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through the one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." As we established a little bit ago, there's confusion between 12 and, and 15 through 19. Verse 12 said that death spread to all men because all sinned. And verses 15 through 19 could appear to say that we were made sinners because of Adam's disobedience. But I'd like to look at it and see what Paul says here. In verse 15 it says, For if by one man's offense many died. Verse 16, For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one. Verse 18, therefore as through one man's offense judgment came to all men. And in verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Here's five times where Paul tells us that death and condemnation were the result of Adam's sin. Paul tells us that something happened that affected all humanity because of what happened. So I believe it's important to consider verse 14 as we continue through the chapter and look at 15 through 19. We are told in 14 that Adam is a type of the one to come. The action of Adam and the action of the one to come referring to Jesus affected the entire world. What we can see from this text is that Jesus is that what Jesus did was not like what Adam did. The effect was the same, but what it brought to the world was completely different. The gift of Jesus is not like the sin of Adam. Adam's effect on the world was a fallen world. Adam's disobedience introduced sin and death into the world. Until Adam's disobedience, there was no sin and there was no separation from God. Now everyone who was born would be in a world where sin and death are present. When Adam chose to sin, everything changed. Our relationship with God changed. Creation as Adam knew it changed, and the world was placed under a curse. We can't have a relationship like Adam had with God. We live in a fallen world that is full of sin. 
But Jesus has done something far greater. Jesus' effect on humanity was grace. Because of what Adam did, many died. But because of what Jesus did, many have grace abounding. Paul has been clear that this is not because of our own doing. There's nothing we've done to make us worthy of this, but it is a gift of God through Jesus. So how is Adam a type of Jesus? Or maybe a more understandable way is how is he a pattern or a figure of him? How did Adam's one effect, one act affect the whole world while at the same time being able to say, say that uh, death spreads to all because all have sinned? And as we stated a moment ago, Adam's transgression introduced sin and death into the world, but Jesus introduced grace. We can clearly see God's redemptive plan of salvation at work here when we look at what Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross. God's desire is not to destroy us with his wrath, but he desires to save us. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The obedience of Jesus brought justification into the world. Without Jesus, there is no hope of being blameless before God. When Jesus came in obedience, he introduced justification to the world. Not that it was just given to all people, but now we had access to it through faith and obedience to him. This should change our typical view of Jesus, or at least what mine is. We read about Jesus in the Gospels and can tend to just see him of someone we should pattern our life after. And while that is certainly true, and I'm not discounting it, he, he is the example that we should follow. But I believe as we look at this chapter, we can see that there's more to look at, at Jesus whenever we're studying about him. When we read scripture about Jesus, we need to acknowledge that he's laying the foundation for our justification. In the scriptures, Jesus is living his life so that we can be justified. The life of Jesus shows humility and being kind when enduring persecution. When he patiently endured being spit on and mocked and crucified. The perfect life of Jesus is amazing and it's humbling. God would be completely just to condemn us even for just one sin. But how many of us have only sinned just once? I believe the obvious answer to each of us is that we have all sinned a lot. We stand condemned before a holy and just God for even just one sin, without Jesus as the justifier of our life. If we look here again in Romans 5, verses 16 and 17, we can see what God did with our many sins. God sent the gift of grace to us through Jesus to bring justification. Justification is not the response that we would expect to receive, but that is exactly what we got from God. Think about the innumerable sins that have been committed from the foundation of the world until now. Jesus freely bore those on the cross for all of us so that some might willingly choose to come to him and submit their lives in service to him in order to honor and to glorify God. God's desire is that we will be reconciled to him through his son Jesus. As we can see here in Romans chapter 5, as we can see in 2 Peter chapter 3, He's long-suffering to us. We stand in one of two places tonight, and that is under the reign of sin 
or under the reign of Jesus. In the last two verses, Paul talks about the impact of the law of Moses. Again, as we heard in Dee's lesson last week, the law of Moses was a part of the discussion in Romans 4, and Paul has previously stated in the letter to the Romans that the law did not bring life, nor did it bring justification. The Jews, however, trusted in the law for them to be able to be justified by. Romans 3 and verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And as we read a moment ago, too, in Romans 4 and verse 15, we see that the law brings wrath. The law of Moses came, but it did not make things better because there was no hope built into the law. The blood of bulls and goats simply just rolled the sins forward. The law was given to reveal sin. But the Jews thought that it would justify them. They failed to recognize that death was in the law and that they were in desperate need of a Savior. I really love the words at the end of verse 20. It says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace is not withheld because of our sins, but rather it abounds much more because of our sins. And as we'll see next week whenever Jeremy presents Romans 6, it starts off by saying, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin continue to live any longer therein? Grace exists because our sin exists. Knowing that we have grace should not drive us to want to sin more as we've been taught, but the fact that we have grace because of our sin should compel us to love and to good works, to try to strive each day to live closer to Jesus, knowing that because we have sinned, God has made a way through, the grace, through his grace. We serve a wonderful God that has went to great lengths and has shown great love in his redemptive plan of salvation. I'd like to look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read verses 10 and 11, and then I want to uh, jump down and look at 18 through 21 as well. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust we are well known in your conscience. Now all things are of God, verse 18, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What I hope that each of us will take from this study is that through Jesus, we can be justified by faith, and that we can have peace with God, and by faith access his grace. Knowing this and knowing that while we were without strength, Christ died for us. And for those of us that have been reconciled, my hope is that we will share this wonderful truth of justification by faith, of reconciliation, peace, and grace from God by faith through Jesus Christ with others.
As we just read in 2 Corinthians 2, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's be faithful ambassadors for Christ. And also for those that have not submitted to God's plan of salvation, my hope would be that you would understand the helpless state that you are in without Jesus as the Lord and justifier of your life. That you would be moved at the love that God has shown to you and extended to you through his son Jesus. And that through his long suffering it would compel you to submit your life to him in obedience to the gospel. I hope this study has been beneficial to you as it has been to me. I certainly look forward to the rest of the lessons that we will hear coming out of Romans. At this time we're going to offer the invitation if you have been sufficiently taught and desire to be buried in baptism with Christ for the remission of your sins, or if there is one that needs the prayers of the church, we'd ask that you'd come forward at this time as we stand and sing the song of invitation.